Now, some of us were talking earlier, and we acknowledged how our year is focused around a few things, one of them being the three-month retreat. And for those of us who come here each year, it's like everything else revolves around it. And I mentioned to someone uh, earlier today that when we talk about last year, we talk about anything that happened before the beginning of the three-month retreat. Because our year starts with the three-month retreat. And for us, as I'm sure it has been for most of you, if not all of you, it has been nine months or a year and a half of looking forward, looking ahead in time to what has become now. The time, the moment, the, the, the conjunction of conditions of the start of the three-month retreat. And it takes a tremendous amount of uh, clarity, determination, energy, recommitment, and just a determination to just keep moving in the direction of being here today. And so for months, a lot of our energy has been thinking about, planning about, making decisions in reference to being here now. An important shift occurred today. And it was the shift from all of that forward thinking, planning, activity, intention, to actually being here in silence, practicing. I want to acknowledge it, I want to bring it out and identify it because it requires a significant shift in our um, aim, our determination, our energy, and everything about being here. Now that we're here, now that the silence has been entered, now that all of that activity that was necessary to get here, to be here, to support being here, all that is outside now. What it takes to get here is very different than what it takes to be here. Now we can let go of the striving, the struggling, the decision-making, the planning, the phone calls, the fixing, the adjusting, can let go of all that. It has served its purpose. We're here. In a way, it's a tremendous relief to finally be able to say, I don't have to do anything else to get here. Let go of that. Whatever you think you might have to yet do, you don't. Now we enter that time, the conditions to actually make the retreat a reality. Prior to this, the retreat has just been our imagination. Now is the time when we have to work to make it a reality. Tonight I want to talk about some of the qualities, the attitudes, the attributes to cultivate in order to undertake six weeks or three months of practice. But first I want to ask, what are we doing here? From the broadest perspective, what are you doing here? 
Why bother coming here? What do you think is in it for you? It's important to ask the question. It's not so important to answer it. But if we understand that in some sense we're all looking for some degree of happiness, some way of happiness, some understanding that would allow us more happiness. If that's the broadest perspective, then we, we're not far off the mark. In our life, outside of retreat, happiness um, has a different meaning. You know, it's, it's excitement, it's enjoyment, it's uh, accomplishment, it's doing things, it's uh, being entertained. These bring a type of happiness. And it is happiness to enjoy, to be entertained, to, to feel good. It brings a certain level of happiness. But we've all seen, to some degree or other, that it's not so ultimately satisfying. We're not going to have much of that happiness here. You get one hour of entertainment a night. But there's another happiness or another degree, another flavor of happiness that comes in solitude, in silence, in the exploration of the unknown, the opening to the unfamiliar in our heart, in our minds, in our bodies, and learning of our own limits. The challenge for us all is to allow the possibility of contentment with conditions here. To see, not to try to make ourselves or force ourselves to be content, but to see if we can actually be content with the simplicity, with the ordinariness of our life here. And if you haven't done a long retreat, it's very ordinary in the sense of it's the same old thing day after day. And yet something very special, very almost magical comes out of just being silent. Really looking at the simplicity of repetitive behavior. I saw an advertisement recently. It said, you have to accommodate the past, prevail in the present, and remain flexible into the future. Do you feel any pressure? <laughs> That's what's required of us, outside, inside. Accommodate our past, much of what we see here is a kind of a personal history review. What has transpired in our life to bring us here? And we look it over. And somehow we have to accommodate it. It's come, it's gone, it's, it's served its purpose, and it's left its residue. We have to accommodate that. We also have to prevail in the present moment. The conditions are what they are, often not what we want or not what we would choose. And yet, we can't remake the world. We can't remake the retreat. We have to deal with things as they are in the present. We have to prevail with our practice, with our bodies, our minds, our roommates, our teachers, the weather, And somehow, we also have to remain flexible into the future, whatever may come. And we don't know what will come. 
And so we need to, to let go of our demands that the future perform for us. And rather let the future unfold and see if we are flexible enough to actually accommodate it, to be with it. One of the deepest roots of happiness is acting in alignment with our deepest intention. When we act in alignment with our deepest wish, our deepest understanding of where we're going in our life, what, what is important to us in our life, then our lives have an integrity that is the foundation for true happiness. Nizargadatta, a Hindu sage some years ago, said, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. And all I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. I like it that he didn't say, make yourself perfect. But rather he said, make love of yourself perfect. However you find yourself Accommodate that. Learn to love that. Accept it or acknowledge it. That's our practice here. Sometimes in the profusion of uh, instruction, uh, books that we might have read, ambitions that we have, we lose sight of or we get confused by the possible ways of understanding what it is we're doing here. And from the most macro perspective we could come across, you know, the, the, the endless wandering in samsara, uh, infinite number of lifetimes in a, in a vast expanding universe or universes and the, the, the endless number of lives that we uh, repetitively take in order to somehow come to uh, self-knowledge and liberation, freedom, understanding. From that perspective to the most minute perspective, what's going on right now? Knee pain, uh, Disappointment with uh, what was offered for tea, uh, too cold, uh, discomfort in the body. How do we understand everything uh, encompassed by those two perspectives? For the most part, we're not going to be philosophizing or trying to put our experience into perspective so much as just trying to be with the experience. And a large part of our instruction will be to just acknowledge the way things are for you. Not necessarily to try to figure them out or to even understand them, why they're happening, where they come from, how to fix it, but rather to see if we can actually open to the way things are for us and let our understanding emerge from what we feel with our bodies, with our hearts, with our minds. And in this, our greatest asset, our greatest assets can become our greatest liabilities. Let me explain. 
Our greatest asset is who we think we are. It's those qualities, conditions, behaviors, attributes that have made it possible for us to come here, to be here, to consider undertaking this practice. And yet, that very same sense of ourself comes with fears, limitations, confusions, doubt. And so we get to look at all of it. The confidence we have in ourself to make the decision to come here, to undertake intensive Dharma practice, fantastic quality, to think we can actually be silent for six weeks, three months, and look deeply. It stops being helpful if our confidence is some sort of smug um, arrogance that just believes that we know it all already, that we know what's going to happen. I've been here before. And it's very easy for that confidence, that self-confidence to, to get in the way of actually opening to the unknown. So we have to be careful of that. Our compassion. I think coming to a retreat like this is maybe the most compassionate thing we can do for ourselves. It really is an expression of how much we care, deeply care about our hearts, our life, our community. And not only this life, but the whole uh, momentum of our uh, evolution, personal or uh, cultural evolution. Compassion, you know, is the response to pain for those who are sensitive. It's that ability to feel both the very obvious and the very subtle pain, physical, mental, emotional. Compassion is a necessary ingredient. That level of care is going to be called upon time and time again in our practice here. But a false compassion would have us pamper ourselves, would have us back off from the intensity of discomfort that is sure to arise at times. Coming to know what's true compassion, what's false compassion for ourselves, for others, is one of the tasks of our practice here. There's a, um, I think it's a clothing company now that has the logo, or maybe it's the name, I'm not sure what, that says, no fear. You know, and you see shirts and things, no fear. And I look at that and the, the, I, the image I get is someone so afraid that they don't dare open to the fear that they feel or they're so insensitive or so numb to it that they can kind of casually say, no fear. I hope you didn't bring any of that with you. It's not that we don't want to have no fear so much as we want to open to the fear, acknowledge it so that we can actually feel it and call forth that courage that's required to be with it. Courage doesn't mean no fear. Courage means ability to open to fear. Commitment takes a tremendous commitment to undertake a practice like this. It's easy to begin a retreat. It's difficult to finish a retreat, to stay in for the duration. It often happens that 
we come with uh, a lot of intention, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy, a lot of commitment, and somewhere before the final bell, it's gone. It dissipates. It gets lost. It gets, we, we forget that we have this commitment, that we had this commitment. On the other hand, if our commitment is somehow um, induces us to become mechanically routinized in our practice, that's not very effective either. We are unable to adapt to the changing conditions of our practice. And so we have to look at what is, and try to articulate, what is our commitment to being here? Certainly, I hope it's not to achieve anything, not to get something, not to accomplish something. These qualities, more, I mean, these are just a few, but the qualities that it takes to be here, to get here, have arisen in our life from the experiences of our past. Our challenge now is to to let those qualities come forth and to further develop them, to further allow them to to blossom, to, to grow with the challenges that we will open to in our practice. If we are exclusively identified with our personal history, our known and unknown life, our limitations, they can exert a tremendously powerful influence on our practice. And we have this belief, I can't do this. I've never been able to. Or we have this this, uh, understanding that has come from misbelief about ourself. Whether it's how much you need to eat, what kind of food you need to eat, how much you need to sleep, how long you can sit, how sure, whatever it is, whatever you believe about yourself, it isn't true. It's not fixed and rigidly true all the time. A retreat like this is a fantastic opportunity to discover the unknown. If we can approach this time with that acknowledgement that we don't know really what's going to happen tomorrow. But if we enter that unknown each moment with the curiosity, with the Uh, interest to just go beyond our limits, to really open to the unknown, then we will. After I'd been doing some retreats, for about 10 years, I decided for a variety of reasons to go to Asia for more practice. And so I went to Burma and I had, I would say, a tremendous enthusiasm for going to practice. It was all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. I wasn't there to be a tourist and I I just wanted to practice. And so I went to Burma and I started uh, practicing with who became my teacher, Saito Upandita. And for the first couple of weeks, my practice was really uh, inspired, really fueled with a tremendous amount of determination and enthusiasm. And um, my practice was kind of traversing over familiar ground. And then after about two weeks, something happened and my practice um, really seemed to fall apart. And I didn't 
really understand what happened, but one, just one day I, I just couldn't be mindful anymore. And it was really quite disturbing and quite um, disruptive because I, I felt like my practice wasn't good anymore. And so at that time we were reporting to Saito Pandita every day and when it was my turn to go to report, I didn't want to. I, I had lost my confidence and I had no self-esteem and I just thought, boy, I must have done something really bad. And uh, maybe if I could just avoid today, I'll come tomorrow and it'll be better. And um, it wasn't allowed. We had to go and report every day. And so I went to the door of his room where I was supposed to report and I, and I just kind of stood there and said, uh, uh, Said, I don't think I'll come to report today. Uh, not going so good. I'll, uh, I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, he looked at me quite uh, questioningly, and he said, well, wh what's going on? And I was still standing by the door, uh, just hoping I could somehow back out and disappear. And I said, well, it's, it's not too good. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. And he said, no, no, no. He said, he, he just really got soft and really gentle, and he says, come on in. Why don't you... Just tell me. I mean, I, I said I couldn't. I don't know what's going on. I can't talk, talk about it. It's pretty. It's not so good. <laughs> and he said, "Well, just tell me what it is." You know, just. And he was very uh, encouraging, kind of like a your favorite uncle, maybe. And I said, "Well, you know," and and then I just tried to tell him how bad my practice was. And as I was telling him, this big smile and grin came across his face which is the most unexpected response. And, and uh, after I finished, he says, you know, sometimes when the yogis feel that their practice is going really well, teachers know that it's, it's, it's not going so good. And sometimes when yogis come in and they think their practice is really doing bad, it's really what the teacher's been waiting to hear. And in some way, I was able to hear him. Not that I suddenly believed that my practice was good, I didn't. But somehow I allowed the possibility that my judgment was wrong. And some, somewhere in that experience, the, the tendency I had, as many of us have, to judge my practice by how pleasant or unpleasant it is, was lifted. And then, it didn't really matter whether practice was pleasant or unpleasant. My interest was to know what's going on. And I saw then that even if it was really chaotic, really unpleasant, wasn't what I expected, you could still be fully aware of it and articulate it. And that's what's important. I tell this story because it's really important to cultivate a non-judgmental attitude towards your practice. Don't believe your judgments. The judgment that says, ah, oh, now I'm really doing good, don't believe it. The judgment that says, oh, I'm really doing bad, I'm really doing poorly, I can't do this, don't believe that either. Just notice it. Open to it. How does it feel to be doing really good? How does it feel to be doing really bad? That's what's important. So much of our sense of ourself is conditioned by how pleasant our experience is. It's a false judgment. Pleasantness and unpleasantness is no indication at all of how good you are or how good your practice is so cultivate, try, remember, to cultivate an attitude of non-judging. You'll get caught. You probably will get caught over and over again. But remember my story. It really isn't... We have no basis for making those judgments about ourselves, about our practice. The standards that we use for evaluating good and bad right and wrong, progress or failure, they just don't hold here. 
early in my Dharma practice, I used to say, you know, it's better to do nothing than to waste time. In any place but a retreat, it doesn't make sense. It's better to do nothing than waste time. What's that mean? But in retreat, it really makes sense. Do nothing. Don't waste your time. Or another thing I used to say was practice or, or, or meditation is the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's what I prefer doing. It sounds oxymoronic. Who wants to do the hardest thing you've ever done? And yet, it's true. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's probably the hardest thing you've ever done. Really practice. Really look. Open. See what's going on. And yet, is there anything that touches you so deeply? The practice to open, to grow beyond our current limitations, to, to, to see the unknown, to realize more of our potential, to manifest more of our potential, requires a really delicate balance between tranquility, calmness, you know, there's the stillness, the, the, the lack of anxiety, and alertness. The qualities of mind of being awake, alert, energized, alive, and on the other hand, being very soft and tranquil and still. With that balance, then we can begin to, to let the body open feel more deeply into the tissue of the body. And as we do that, of course, we feel more deeply into the structure of the mind or the structure of the heart, if you will. Feeling more carefully, more fully, uh, more sensitively, what makes up this thing, me? The format of this retreat, you know, the, the silence, the precepts, the uh, regularity of sitting and walking uh, is a powerful support for tranquility. Because it allows the mind to be uh, unengaged, really, in deciding what it has to do. When I first came out of the monastery some years ago, it was exhausting to have to pick and choose and decide what to wear, what to eat, what to do. And on a retreat like this, it, even though it seems um, a very limiting maybe, or, or kind of uh, boring, it actually is a condition that helps to preserve energy. And to the extent that you can not struggle with the format of the retreat, you'll conserve your energy. The essential ingredient for a retreat of this size, of this many people, is for each of us to find a way to love being alone. To somehow be able to go within and find that place that can be alone in the midst of 130 or 140 people. Without cutting off from the others. And that's a balance. That takes, that takes a real balance to, to stay within, to really look within, to feel where we are here. 
while simultaneously acknowledging where we are out here. Recognizing that we are in this intentional community, that we do uh, impact one another, that how we are affects everyone else here. The integrity with which we do our practice supports the practice of others. The thread or the, the, the tapestry of this community is as fragile as the intention of a single person. And so it's important that we all consider just how connected we all are. And yet, we each have our own area of solitude, area of practice to be involved with. We're not here to do only what we love. And neither is the staff nor we teachers here to somehow satisfy your needs. But rather, you're here to learn to love what it is that you do. In the simplicity, the most simplicity that you can imagine waking, walking, eating, sitting, sleeping, learning to love that, learning to open to it, and to be content with what's offered, with what is actually here happening now. In the first days, uh, there's a lyrics that go, the first days are the hardest days. And they are. The first days of retreat are extraordinarily difficult. I don't know how people manage to do a, a weekend retreat, the two most difficult days of any retreat. Because we come exhausted, and so we're dealing with sleepiness. And, um, and, the, and the other pole of that is restlessness the anxiety and restlessness to, to, to do something. And so if you've been experiencing some restlessness and some sleepiness today, well, yeah, that's, that's what was being offered today. Um, there's lots of it available, probably for another day too. But um, can we be at ease with that? Can we know that's the way it is? And let the... Uh, sleepiness, uh, the restlessness, let them go their own way. If we just continue to make our efforts, and we just try to sit and walk and pay attention, uh, they'll go in their own time. In a day or two, you'll see. They go by themselves. We don't need to fight them. We don't need to somehow expect that it should be different already. But let yourself gently, gradually, um, come into this, come in fully into this retreat. Helen Keller says, to keep our faces towards change and behave like free spirits is strength undefeatable. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Can we keep our face towards? Can we look and see the innumerable changes we'll go through? And, and open to it, not avoiding it, not trying to somehow fix our life so that we don't feel pain, that we don't feel fear, that we don't feel anxiety. It's not possible. 
If we're going to open, we're going to feel those things. Our life, our practice is either a daring adventure or it's nothing. Living in this community for the time that we will, we need a deep intention to care for one another. To have metta for one another. To wish happiness for ourselves and each other. Annually, it happens that the window wars take place. Whether to keep the windows open, whether to keep the windows closed. Or the roommate wars. Or the walking space wars. Or any other number of wars. That comes because we stop caring about one another. We put ourselves first, foremost, and only. And I mention it now because when it comes up, we'll have to remind you. And I don't want it to be the first time you heard it. But it's really important to cultivate a patient tolerance for one another. To forbear the insults and the distractions and the uh, what others impose on you, the others' conditions, what they impose on you, to tolerate them, to put up with them, to be patient. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, uh, patience is the greatest virtue. Nothing is accomplished without patience. No matter how much you're striving and struggling, no matter how good your samadhi, how deep your insight, if there isn't some patience along with it, It's easy to get mad. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to get judgmental. But if we want world peace, we must let go of our attachments and truly live like nomads. You know, that's where I nomad at you, you nomad at me. <laughs> that way, there will surely be no madness on the planet. <laughs> Swami Biyandananda. In all of this effort, intention, activity to get here, to be here, and no doubt to begin the practice today to try to be mindful. It takes a tremendous amount of effort, tremendous amount of intention, energy, and yet can any of us hurry the process really? Do we really know what it takes to open? How do we open our heart? How do we open our mind? How do we let go of these deep holding patterns in the mind, in the body? Slowly, gently, carefully. One Eskimo puts his life's understanding like this. And I think over again my small adventures when with a shore wind I drifted out in my kayak and thought I was in danger. My fears, those I thought so big for all the vital things I had to get and to reach. And yet, there is only one great thing, the only thing, to live, to see in huts and on journeys, the great day that dawns 
and the light that fills the world. We should remember that our only agenda here needs to be to see the great day that dawns and the light that fills our heart. So let's sit for a minute and let the words come to an end. Today, we have lived a noble life. We have undertaken the practices of sila or ethical conduct, samadhi or steadying the mind, and panya, cultivating wisdom. The three trainings of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. This is extraordinary work that we've undertaken to purify our hearts, our minds, our speech, behavior so that we create no harm, no confusion, no pain in our life and in the lives of others. It's a rare opportunity. And yet it is the work that wise men and women throughout history have valued and appreciated, have acknowledged to be the true work of a human life. It's not easy work that we do here. It's maybe the most difficult work we've ever done. We're not merely looking for some pleasure or a little achievement in this life, but rather we're looking to turn around the momentum of a lifetimes of habit. To see the deepest roots of our suffering and the suffering of others. And to turn them around to uproot them, to let go of those habits. We need to be patient, gentle, and understanding. In this process of awakening, we create a powerful force of goodness in our individual and our collective lives. And this goodness radiates out over the world, touching everyone we come in contact with. And they feel it. They can notice it. They can benefit from the goodness in our own heart and mind. In this way, we contribute to the peace of the world by the power of our intentions and the sincerity of our effort, we create this force of goodness. We manifest this goodness in the world. 
we can share the merit of this good work with others. And it is traditional in this practice to call to mind those beings with whom you wish to share the merit of your work today. And to the extent possible to share with our parents, our children, and our immediate family members, calling them to mind. Our extended family and friends, neighbors and acquaintances, co-workers, all beings everywhere, may they share in the merit of the work, the good work, the Dharma work, the noble work we've done today. And may this work be the cause and the condition for all beings everywhere to live with awareness, to live in harmony, and to be free of all forms of suffering. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upakituva niruchanti te sang vapasamo sukho. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Seeing this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.